we're returning to this letter that Peter wrote uh, later in his life and in his ministry. This is uh, uh, Peter writing after a lot of experience, having followed Jesus and serving Jesus in a variety of places, uh, having grown old in the faith. And, and what he's doing is he's writing to a bunch of people that are most, mostly young in their faith, and yet asking a lot of critical questions that many of us ask all the time, like what should our relationships with each other look like? What should our relationships with the world around us look like? These are questions that dominate our thinking and our conversations a lot. And so when we look at First Peter, what we're looking at uh, in a lot of ways is an explanation for us about the kind of community that God is building among us. And so two weeks ago in First Peter 1, we looked at how God was building a community that's governed by hope. And, how, and he calls us to the courage of hope and, and uh, the trust to be able to hope. And then last week, we talked about how this hope tutors us in holiness, that there are certain ways, our shapes that our life should take as we follow the Lord, um, and that we reflect a holy God into the world. Uh, and one of the ways we do that is through striving to live lives of holiness. And this week, I think what we see is that Peter's digging in a little deeper with us on this issue of holiness. And he gives us what I like to think of as one of the, just one of the motivations for holiness. And that is how he intends to use, how God intends to use a community of holiness in his world to serve him. So that's what we're talking about this morning is how God intends to use his community of holiness in the world. And for that, I'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 12. Will you hear the word of the Lord? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us in profound ways this morning, uh, that you would speak truth to us, and that you would give us just a glimpse of the wonder and the goodness that you offer to us in these words. Lord, I pray you would reassure us of your will, build us in faith, and would you help me, your servant, to serve these friends well and to honor you. Let every word I say be in fidelity with what you intend through your word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to tell you about a friend of mine this morning. His name is Todd, and he's going to kill me when he hears that I was talking about him, but I think it's okay. Todd is one of the most generous, big-hearted guys I know, Um, and he also is one of the most broadly knowledgeable people that I've ever met. He's got a big old brain, and it's filled with all sorts of useless information. If you're looking for a partner or teammate for a trivia contest, Todd's your guy. And one of the things that he's fascinated with is he loves to look at cities And he loves to look at how the architecture of a city reveals the desires of a city. And so so he has studied architectural history, he studied social sciences, global, U.S. history, all kinds of things in order to make sense of this. And all of this is on the side, mind you. This has nothing to do with his day job. This is just because he's passionate about this. But one of the things he loves to do is he and his wife will go to a city that they've never been before. They take a long weekend and they go and they just want to walk the city and look at the buildings. And they walk and they walk and they walk and they look at the buildings and, uh, and they try to understand the heart of the city with its history and with all of its hopes and all of its struggles and what, how they see it and what these buildings look like. And I don't know how accurate he is in all of his observations, but I can tell you when he came down to Birmingham, I think it was like six months ago, when he came down to Birmingham uh, and he showed me, he like talked through the different things that he's seen. He made remarkable observations about our own city with all of our hopes and our struggles. It was just amazing. How is that possible? Because when we build things, we are revealing our heart's desire. You can see it written into the architecture. This was true when God uh, created the Garden of Eden. You can see his heart's desire, what he wanted for his people, what he loved to give, written into that story. And you can also see the revelation of a heart's desire in the building of the Tower of Babel just a few chapters later. You see pictures of what the heart of those men were up to in that story. And this is true today. Every building you walk into, churches work this way, homes work this way, banks, hospitals, every building that you walk into reveals a certain purpose for how it would shape your life. And it's just written right into the architecture of it. And I'm talking to you about this because in verse 5, Peter makes an astounding observation that God himself is an architect and that he's building a house through us. He says, we are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. And when we look at this passage, we get a glimpse of God's desire written into the architecture of what he is building through you and through me with all kinds of wonder. And so that's what we're talking about this morning is what do we see 
written into the architecture of the spiritual house God is building. What, what is God hoping for in all of this? And so I'm going to talk about it three ways. I'm going to talk about God's hopes for the life of the house. And then God's hopes for the foundation of the house. And finally, God's hopes for the purpose of this house. The life, the foundation, and the purpose. All right, let's start with life of the house. Talk about what the life inside this house might look like. When I was, uh, I've talked to you about this before, but I'm just going to bring it up again. You all know that I grew up in a neighborhood. I was a suburban kid. And so there were a lot of houses there. And uh, I've told you about the bicycle gang that I was a part of. Stranger Things has a very nostalgic uh, place in my own heart. But that's kind of what growing up in my neighborhood looked like. And when we gathered together and we weren't outside, we gathered in each other's houses. And uh, I don't know how to put this lightly. Some houses were preferable to others, okay, when we got together. And usually it had to do with two things. It had to do with how we got along with their parents and the type of snacks they fed us, okay? So relationships and food. And that's what we actually see in this passage. Peter talks about our relationships and our diet uh, in the life of this house. He starts in verse 1 by talking about things that we should put away. And he gives us a list. He, He talks about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and slander. He says, these things do not have a place in our relationships with each other. They do not. And what's interesting to me when you look at these is I think when you look at them, you see all of the, that these are all things that erode our ability to love each other. They're obstacles to love. They're ways that we harm each other. And what's interesting to me is that he says, instead, in verse 2, we should be like newborn infants who long for pure spiritual milk. This is where he calls us to examine the food that we eat together. And that phrase, pure spiritual milk, is a loaded term. And it looks like Peter's doing a bit of wordplay with us. That word, hang with me on this one, that word spiritual is actually the Greek word Logikon or Logikon, it's uh, very similar to the Greek word for word, logos. And so longing for the milk of the word could be a good way to, to think about that translation. And so he's telling us like spiritual infants long for the milk of God's word. For a baby, milk is not a fringe benefit, is it? It's an absolute Necessity. So he's calling us together to feed on God's word as one of our basic life necessities. Hunger for it. Feed each other with it. Serve it up as the main course whenever we gather together. And it's interesting to me that Peter connects the nature of our relationships with the nature of our diets. You get that? It's like he's saying, you will either feed on God's word or you will feed on each other. And we can't, be, we can't be casual about this. We can absolutely feed on the things that Peter says have no place in our community. We can feed on hatred. 
We know communities that look like that, don't we? We can feed on envy. We can feed on slander and deceit and hypocrisy. And the sneaky thing about all of that that, that's hard to talk about is that those things can taste sweet in the beginning. And they can even fill our stomachs. It can be like eating ice cream for dinner. It can taste sweet in the beginning, but nobody would look at that and say it was nourishing or healthy. Why is God's word so nourishing? I'm in real danger of oversimplifying something that's complex, but, but go with me here. When you read God's word, you see this unvarnished history, a testimony to the brokenness of God's people. You see all the ways that we have failed to live up to God's call on our lives. You see ways that we've been unjust, ways that we've been selfish. You see ways that we have sinned in in just about every area of our lives. What kind of people would do this? Make a, uh, a historically accurate record of all the ways that we failed. Well, the one reason we would do that in God's word is because when we make little of ourselves and we display all the ways that we are broken, running parallel or more like maybe a double helix, you see stories of God's profound love and faithfulness running right alongside stories of human brokenness. We make little of ourselves and we make much of God and God's word teaches us, it trains us in the ways of God's faithful and unrelenting grace given to our lives. And that can be hard to trust. And so it's story after story of how God redeems his broken people as a promise to you and to me. One of my favorite professors used to say that grace is the golden thread that runs from one end of the Bible to the other. It is the thing that holds it together. And I will tell you that grace is what holds us together too. Listen, if you want rich relationships in any area of life, whether you're talking about your neighbors or your friends or your spouse or your kids, or it's going to take a lot of grace. It's going to require being trained in the ways of grace where we are quick to apologize and quick to forgive and bear personal insult and forgive anyway. Like it's going to require training in the ways of grace. And I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to hate somebody when you think they need grace more than you do. And it's much easier to love somebody when you look at grace and say, I am in just as much need of that as anybody else. And when we feed on God's word, we are feeding in the ways of grace. And we celebrate when we see God's grace permeate our life together. It sinks in deeply and it starts to characterize our relationships with each other. And it makes its way through our community. And that's what God calls us for, that our life together should reflect the ways he's given grace to us and how we extend grace to each other. And so when we look at this passage, we see grace 
characterizing our life together, and we also see that grace lies at, its, at the very foundation of this house that God is building. Because right there you see, as Peter is eager to tell us, at the heart of all of this is Jesus. He is the cornerstone that stabilizes and supports what God is building. Uh, he quotes two different Old Testament texts to make this case. The first one is Isaiah 28. You see that in verse 6. He says, In Jesus God laid down a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, The second one is in verse 7. It's quoted from Psalm 18. It's talking about Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this image of a cornerstone would have been a really powerful one for the audience that, uh, that would have received this letter because in this context, the cornerstone is the first stone that goes into the ground. Some of you can tell, I don't know if cornerstones are a part of buildings anymore, but they were a big deal back then. And uh, that stone, that first stone set the angle and set the strength of the building that was being built. It was the first thing that went on the ground. It had to be a really strong, dense stone, and it also had to have perfect angles because the angle of the house, the strength of its foundation, everything relied on that first cornerstone being perfect. And just as a house is only as strong and as stable as that one stone, our faith and the shape of our lives will only be as strong and as stable as our willingness to trust Jesus. And our stability is found in him and nowhere else. That's what that image of the cornerstone Jesus is given to us. And that's why this cornerstone is seen as exceedingly valuable. You see that in the passages. It's it's called precious. And that word precious could have been used in reference to a cornerstone or to a really valuable gemstone. It was like that important. Um, And a good builder will have this mess of stones, uh, building material to build a house with, and he will go right through looking at stone after stone until he finds that one perfect stone. He will pass over a lot of stones uh, in order to find that one. And if you found that perfect cornerstone, you wouldn't surround it with a bunch of other worthless stones, right? (laughs) So the value of each of these living stones that he puts in there is traced directly to the value of the one in verse 4, living stone that was rejected by God, but in in the sight of God chosen and precious. And so what we see in this passage, let me just sum all that up, is that in Jesus, as our cornerstone, we find both our stability and, both of our, and, and our value. That, that, that our stability is only as stable as his. And our value is traced directly to him. And when God looks at his building materials, he sees them as incredibly valuable. Uh, several years ago, I had a friend who was building a house. He was building, it was his dream house. He was just, I've got friends that do things on the side, I guess. But he was just building this dream house. And the thing about it was uh, he was doing it on the side. Uh, so he was putting a, uh, a cabin. He bought some land where his family liked to vacation. And he was just building this cabin out there. He wanted to retire. His, he and his wife wanted to retire to this house. 
uh, when they could, and, uh, and he loved this house. He had so much affection for it. The thing that was different about it was he and his wife designed it with the help of a good architect, mind you, uh, but they designed this, uh, this house, and, uh, and he was building it with his own bare hands. And so on weekends, he would just go out there, and he taught himself how to do a lot of things. Most of the work he learned to do himself. Sometimes he had to get a professional out there. He wasn't going to mess with electricity. Um, But for the most part, he was like choosing the materials and putting them in place himself. And he loved this house. And he took me out there to see it, and it was really almost done, but it wasn't quite ready for people to live in it just yet. And he started walking me around, and he, he was pointing at things about this house that he loved, and he was talking about the building materials. He took me into the living room, and he said, this is, what, this is wood from somewhere, and this is, why, like, this is why I chose. I'm really excited that I was able to get this wood for the floor here. And he took me to the mantle, and he said, this is where I found this tree that later became the mantle that hung over the fireplace. And he told the story about how he and his wife deliberated over what the kitchen tiles would be and what they would look like, but he laid them each one by one. He was proud about every part of that house. Every part of the building materials had value because he saw them as valuable. And so listen, one of the things I want you to see here is that if you belong to Jesus with faith in him, God looks at you as exceedingly precious and valuable to him. And and just like my friend gave his hands to the work of building this house, God gave his own son in order that he might win you back to himself. God is building his dream house. And you're a part of it. And this should affect how you understand yourself. That you are valuable because God says you're valuable. And it should also affect how we see each other. Because if this is true, then every other one of the living stones that are a part of the building of God's house is valuable. That you each inhabit a primary and very personal place in God's kingdom. And that's saying something because uh, God is placing stones in his house that he finds in all kinds of different places. Like even just the story that we read, like these are people in modern day Turkey and Peter's writing from Rome, this movement of this gospel movement of Jesus is crossing the entire world. He is putting together a variety of like building materials into one place. And we, you and I, we even come together as people with different backgrounds, different values, different ways of seeing the world. And despite all of these differences we have, each one of us is given a place of inestimable value by God. It should govern how we see each other. And another thing this tells us is that we're all interconnected in, in incredibly important ways. That just as we are bound to Jesus, we are bound to each other. We are placed. And sometimes, sometimes we are placed amongst people that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. And, and I'll tell you, there's, there's beauty in that. 
Because that's the place. There's a necessary beauty when God attaches us to people who are different than we are because that's, that's usually the place where we're often getting stretched. That's usually the place where our blind spots might be being exposed. That's usually the place where the idols of our heart are being challenged. That's how rough stones become smooth. And it's not always fun, but it's often very good for us. And just as we see grace lying at the heart of our life together, we see grace lying at the foundation. And if these things are good for us, it has to be good for those around us. And that's where we begin talking about the purpose of God's house and the world. Understanding our purpose in the world is important, and it's often at the heart of a lot of questions we ask as Christians, is it not? Like, what's my place here? What's my purpose? How do I uh, exist in a place where my faith feels less and less welcome? Like, (laughs) these are things that we ask. These would have been things they were asking too. What's my purpose? And I just want to say two things about this that I see in the passage. The first is Peter reminds us who we are. He tells us, remember who you are. And he says, remember who you serve. Uh, Remember who you are. You see that in verse 9. This is profound. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Now, that's a pretty grand summary of who we are, is it not? Like it makes it, I want to be a part of that people, right? Uh, and then in verse 12, he tells us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. honorable. Uh, and, and, and one of the things he's doing is he's using this word Gentile to describe all non-believers. So if you remember, uh, he called us the elect, Isra- or the elect exiles, we're the new Israel Um, and now he's calling Gentile non-believers. And so as complex as people are and as diverse as we are, he's telling us to understand people in in two groups in this passage. He's saying there are those who are God's people, and then there are those who are not. And those who belong are called to serve those who don't. That's one of the things he's telling us. We are a royal priesthood. You know, what a royal, you know what a priest did? A priest stood in the gap. A priest's job was to stand between God and man and that they would, and it, with the effort that the two would come together. And all of the sacrifices and all of the prayers that they offered, the priest's job was to close the gap and bring men closer to God. That's what the priest wanted to do. And so if we're a royal priesthood, if we're a priesthood of all believers, then we're a people of the gap. We serve the Lord and those around us by trying to bring God to the people and bring the people to God. That's at the fundamental core of who we are. And so as we think about our good deeds, he says, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, the questions that I get that surround this concept of uh, what, what place do my works have in my walk of faith? If I have such a, a robust understanding of grace, then are my works important? And these are good questions. We should, we should ask them. One of the things 
that one of the ways to attend to that question is just to see how God uses the life of faith and good works and holiness we grow in in order to serve the world around us. That as we grow in faith and grow in beginning to inhabit a holy life, that people around you who don't know God might meet a holy God. That they might see Jesus at work in your life. That you are placed, yes, but you are placed with a purpose as a priest to serve the people around you as God calls you. I've got a friend of mine who uh, bought a house. This was several years ago. And uh, after all the... uh, after all the papers were signed, he went to uh, this house that he had just bought. It wasn't moving day yet. It was like immediately after he signed the papers. He goes and he stands on the sidewalk and stares at the house. And he said it started to rain and rain was just dripping on him and he just stood there and he prayed this. He said, Lord, use this house. Use us as we inhabit this house to bless our neighbors. May others know Jesus because you put us here. That sounds like a purpose, and it's a grand purpose. It's a good one, and it's worth giving our lives for. But here's the thing about this, is that whenever we think about purpose, we also have to come face-to-face with all the ways we fail in our purpose, don't we? Like, we can be inspired toward it and also be feeling all the ways we're broken at the same time, right? So let me just close with a word of grace. If you look at Uh, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, you will see toward the end of that sermon, Peter was actually borrowing Jesus's metaphor. In the Sermon on the Mount throughout, Jesus is issuing a high call for what our lives should look like as those who profess to follow him. And you can't read that without thinking in heart-rending ways all the ways that we have failed Jesus's call in our lives. And toward the end of the sermon, He closes by talking about these houses that we build with our lives. He says, anyone who obeys my word will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when the rain falls and the floods come up, his house won't fall because it was built on a sure foundation. A sure foundation. When you think about your purpose, I want you to think at it. I want you to think about it as a big purpose and one worth giving our lives to. But I also want you to see that Jesus knew exactly who he was speaking to. And he knows who you are and who I am. And, and I want you to see that after Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount, he took a path that led him to a place where he bore the sinful He bore all of the sin and the broken ways we've navigated our lives on his shoulders at the cross. That when we think about this, we trust the cross for grace. The cross is where we find this grace. And the wonder is that he somehow takes the broken offering of our lives and uses them to build his beautiful kingdom in this place. That is amazing. Grace in our life together, grace in our foundation, and grace in our purpose. Amen. Thanks be to God. May it ever be so. Let me pray. Father, please be with us.
Help us to lean into the purposes that you call us to with real courage, with real wisdom. I pray, Father, that you will give us such a grand picture of what you've done for us. Our lives are assured in you. And that you will also give us the ability to risk, to serve, to serve well the people that are around us. Make us a church. Make us your people who serve in your world as you would have us, as we wait for you to return to us to make all things new. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.